1 Timothy chapter 2. <laughs> 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Lord, we pray that as we open up our Bibles here, your, your very word that you've given to us, that you would take these words and with the power of your Holy Spirit, use these words that here sit on this page to influence us, to affect us, to mold us, to motivate us, to convict us and encourage us, Lord. Lord, sometimes we need a hard word from you. Sometimes we need to struggle through difficult and compelling things. And sometimes we just simply need a refreshing word of encouragement and invigoration. And wherever we are at in all of our different points in life right now, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Lord, that your word will accomplish exactly what needs to be accomplished in our lives. And so we pray confidently trusting you that this is in fact what you're going to do in us here as we hear from your word and worship you. So we give you all praise, all honor, all glory that's due your name, Jesus. Most importantly, we pray that as we walk out of these doors, we would know you better and love you more than we did when we came in. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. First Timothy. Now, Timothy, this is important, especially coming into chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, but especially as we enter into the, mm, the nitty and the gritty of this particular epistle, that we want to be mindful of the genres of Scripture. Okay, this is what we would call an epistle, right? A fancy word for a letter that was written. There's epistles, 
Letters all throughout the New Testament. Most of the New Testament's made up of epistles, right? That's not the Gospels and it's not Acts of Revelation. Pretty much it's an epistle of some sort. A letter written to some group of people. But the unique part of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, Philemon as well, is that it isn't written necessarily to a large group of people. Although I think that as you read it and we study it, there's the assumption that large groups are going to read it. We're doing it here. Well, we're not large. But we're reading it here. Large groups do study it. But it was written to an individual. And it isn't just some random individual. He isn't writing a letter to somebody who he doesn't know and isn't familiar with, right? This isn't the epistle to the Romans, right? Romans, he hadn't been to Rome yet. He was writing to them basically as an introduction of himself. And he had been encouraged that there has been house churches planted in the city of Rome. And so he wanted to write to them so that they would be excited that he was coming to town. They would be excited to hear from him. And that they would have, when he arrived, this is important, a level of understanding So that when he communicated when he got there, there wasn't a whole lot of front-end head-scratching, what do you mean by this kind of work? Right? Romans is laid out very logically, systematically. He goes from sin, sin, sin. Justification, 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 sanctification. Right? If you're, you're probably doing the chapter breaks in your mind as I'm doing this, because that's what I'm doing. Sanctification, sanctification, sanctification. And then he goes on and talks about nation of Israel and how they fit in and election and all those kind of things. And then he gets to the practical stuff in chapter 12. But all of this lays the groundwork so when he gets there, they have a foundation. He is able to implant within them, give them presuppositions, right? I love that word. So that when they arrive, or when he arrives, they have an understanding already of the things that he is going to say. So when he uses a phrase, like he does regularly in the book of Romans, justification, they have an understanding of it. Following me so far? Well, Timothy, what we have to remember about this particular book, is this book wasn't written in a vacuum, right? This isn't... The Quran that supposedly just fell out of the sky and is God's literal written word and has no context to writing or, you know, those kind of things. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a brother who had been with him in the thick of ministry, right? They had been going on their missionary journeys. He had been sharing the gospel all over the place with Timothy at his side. Timothy had seen him be persecuted. Timothy was in the town where we saw at the beginning of this book where Paul was stoned probably to death and the Lord raised him back to life. That's where he was when he was picked up by Paul, the second missionary, second time around. So Timothy had been with Paul for a long time, had a lot of 
front end understanding. So as we start to get into the nitty and gritty of this book, there are certain passages, one we're going to get to here tonight, that frankly are difficult for people and confusing for people and have caused, I'll use a biblical phrase, no small controversy. And that's because I think a big part of it is that we, uh, number one, don't allow Paul to speak in totality and we want it to say what honestly we want it to say. And one of the things that we want to remember is that Timothy had a foundation already in place. And so Paul can say certain things that he couldn't say otherwise. He would have to qualify all over the map. And he does a little qualification here. But as we get into it, we'll see this. But this is to begin this. I want you to keep this in mind as we move forward. But first of all, right? Verse 1. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all, prayer. Prayer is one of the single most important things in the Christian life. Prayer is the very, I likened it to breathing. It's something, breathing is something we do most of the time unconsciously. Every once in a while we're aware of it. Maybe after working out or something, we're breathing heavy. Or I find that if I feeling ten, if I feeling, if I'm feeling tense, that stopping and taking a few big deep breaths will help to just kind of calm me and put me a little bit at ease. It'll give me a little clarity in my thought and my thinking. Prayer is like this. At least as we mature as Christians. We grow more and more and more in our knowledge and love for the Lord. The more and more it becomes a, the, the, such a part of us that, you know, while we are still partially sanctified, it's very hard to discern which parts are sanctified and which aren't because we become so mature in Christ as we grow in him. That we see all the areas of life that God is affecting and God is changing. Well, prayers like that. I, I now, more so than ever, but I have always in my mind had a running conversation with God in my head. Just as I live my life. In my very early days, I remember it was very deliberate. I remember in my little red Suzuki Samurai driving around in Southern California and this little beer can of a car, praying all the time because, one, well, I didn't want to get crushed <laughs> in this thing. But two, I remember consciously as a new Christian praying for everybody in their cars and praying, Lord, what do you think about this? And then a song would come on the radio or something and I'd pray about that particular song or these lyrics. And it was just a running conversation with God. And as I've grown in the Lord and have been walking with him for, you know, a quarter of a century now, I find that it's just such a part that I'm almost, I have to focus to be aware that that's what I'm doing. 
Prayer is so important for the life of the Christian. It's the very breath we breathe. So it's no surprise to me that when he starts out in the meat of the epistle, he says, I first of all, and he focuses on prayer. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. I know that prayer is something that it's, it's one of the subjects that we can talk about as Christians in any setting and immediately we'll all get convicted because all of us don't feel like that we have a very good prayer life, do we? I don't. Even though I got this thing in my head all day long, I still am like, God, I should have been praying more. You know, I just was thinking about this and I wasn't on purpose, but I'm glad I did it. Today when I came in here, you know, I always come an hour early to pray. Always. So if you ever at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon are just like, man, I need something. Come down here. I will pray with you. I'm already here doing it. But I had just set everything up and and I'd sat down right there in the pew to pray. And I started praying. And then I thought, oh, I just thought popped in my head. I'm not saying it's demonic or carnal or anything, but a thought popped in my head. Oh, I should take an Instagram picture of my sermon. Right. So what I do, I set it up up here and I took it. And as I did that, I was, I'm reading the text as I'm taking the picture. I'm like, dang, I'm supposed to be here praying. Because <laughs> that's what the text is about, right? So I, we all need improvement in our prayer life. And here he urges prayer and supplication. We need that urging from time to time. We need that, we need that reminder, pray, 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 pray. We have nothing if we're not praying. If we're not praying and we're not connected with the Lord in that way, uh, we, we don't say this, but we're subtly relying on our own strength. We're subtly relying on our own ability to do. And that won't do. That won't get us where we spiritually need to go. So he urges, first of all, you have these four categories laid out here. Now, in my own mind, I see distinctions in these prayers or these types of prayers some of the guys I read said, no, there's no distinction here. He's just being superlative for emphasis. I'm not so sure. I think he's actually breaking down different categories and ways that we can pray. And I'll show you why in just a second. But first of all, supplications. This is basically just requests. You know, when we have our prayer time that we have here from time to time, it's almost always supplications for healing, requests for healing, requests for health. Now, those are, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, you know, because we have all those that they're just pedestrian or mundane. They're not, they're important. We should be praying for these things. We should be supplicating to the Lord. But here, in this context, he says, I urge supplications to be made for all people. So we should be re- make praying for requests for all kinds of people, all the people around us. We want to be praying for these people. And we want, I, I ask regularly, non-Christians, Christians alike, I don't care. I, I don't know what the Lord's doing. So I say, what can I pray for you? And I asked a guy this this week, and he, it, 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 I, like I threw a snake at his mom. Just, you know, didn't know what to do or how to react to me saying that. I don't know that he's ever had anybody say that to him before. What can I pray for you for? 
And he stumbled and bumbled and didn't know what to say. So I just said, I'll just pray for it. I threw a couple of things out there. And he's like, yeah, 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 that's, that's good. But we want to be praying for specific, exact needs for particular people around us. Prayers. I am not going to say that this is dogmatic something you have to, you know, here's what it is. But I think for me, in my mind, at least this helps me. When I read this word here, prayers, I, in my mind, think actual biblical prayers, right? You know, there's, they're all over the New Testament. Look at, look at just back a couple pages. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's do three. I like this one too. Ephesians chapter 3. There's a prayer in chapter 1 and a prayer in chapter 3. But let's look at the one in chapter 3. It begins in verse 14. Just listen. Well, read along, but listen too. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ Jesus that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now that's a prayer. Right? That's good stuff. When I read him saying, first of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, my mind goes to biblical scriptural texts. I want to pray these prayers for people. So when I pray for someone, especially in the church, one of the members of the church, I know you're Bible-believing, born-again, Jesus-loving, saved, Holy Ghost-filled Christian. And I pray, oftentimes I will just pick one of these prayers out and plug your name in and pray these specific prayers for you. At least I know if I screw up on all my other prayers, which is entirely possible, right? I know I'm not screwing this one up. And I know I'm not screwing Ephesians 1 up. And I know I'm not screwing so many of the other places where we pray through texts of Scripture for somebody else because it's just the Word of God. Intercessions means asking specifically for God's intervention. It's different than supplications because supplications are general requests, whereas intercession in my mind at least and at least in some of the commentaries that I was reading saying that this specific phrase here this idea of prayer is that I am asking God to intercede and in, especially in context of the text here all about salvation I'm going to say that this is interceding for redemption or a work of God in somebody's life who is already a believer specifically 
right? So I'm interceding for this specific issue and I'm asking God to do this one thing. Save this person. Fill this person. Reveal your will to this person. Do this in this life specifically. But I'm really focusing on salvation and God to intervene for their redemption and thanksgivings. Thanksgivings. There are so many people that we come in contact with all the time that I am honestly not thankful enough for. Even people who rub me wrong, there's something good because they're created in the image of God. There's some kind of thing the Lord's doing and I don't know what. And so I need to remember and be mindful to be thankful for people who are in my life, who are all around me, praying regularly, Lord, Lord, thank you for this particular person. It keeps me humble if I really have, you know, a hard time with them. And it keeps me humble even for those who I love and am very close with and have a particular appreciation for. Because I'm always focusing on God, you see. These other prayers, it's easy, it might be easy, for me to focus so much on them that I become them-centered. But as soon as I become thankful in my prayers and pray with thanksgiving, suddenly all my prayers are God-centered. You see? Because I'm not just thankful to them for them. I'm thankful to God for them. And so I'm acknowledging God in my prayers of thanksgiving always and at every time. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 1, one of the biggies of the sins that he brings up is that people weren't thankful. They weren't acknowledging God. They weren't thankful to God. They weren't trusting in him. To be made for all people. Now, now let me, let me go further. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he says he wants prayers to be made for all people. And then he gives us a qualification. He gives us specificity. All, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Because those people are easy to leave out. Right? When's the last time you prayed for Gavin Newsom? Right? <laughs> he needs, we need to pray to the Lord for Gavin Newsom. And not just, that, you know, some people are going to hear that and go, yeah, pray, smite him. No. He's there for, for whatever reason because the Lord has placed him there. He wouldn't have any time, just like Jesus said to Pilate, you'd have no authority unless the Lord had given it to you. So for whatever reason, whatever time, whatever purpose, for whatever plan God has, he's there because God has allowed him and ordained in some reason for him to be there. And that goes with everybody, all of our senators, all of our you know, state congressmen, national, whoever they are, our city council, our mayor. We need to be praying for these people. Now, he tells us that there is a underlying spiritual motivation behind our prayers for them. We certainly want good for them, but we also want to live a peaceful, quiet life 
godly and dignified in every way. So there's two things there. First of all, there was a lot of hostility against the early Christian church, which we don't experience, right? Did anybody walk in here worried that Chico PD is going to come kick the door in with their SWAT gear and drag us out of here into jail, right? Now, silly. <laughs> None of us even think, no, not even close to that. Well, they certainly did think those things without the SWAT gear, of course, but you know what I'm talking about is persecution was such a real thing for this early fledgling church that Paul is here saying, pray for them, number one, so they become Christians, but number two, so that we might live a peaceful and godly life, a quiet life, pardon me. We are not, one thing I wrote down here is the church is not a revolutionary army. Now, unfortunately, some revolutions have begun in the name of Christ and have had the banner of the cross flying over them, but that's not the church. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then his people would fight, but it's not. We are not a revolutionary army. Now, in a sense, I guess we're a little subversive because we certainly do want to pray for Christ to be king in the hearts of everybody who lives. Certainly, we want that. And we pray for that. That's part of the intercessions that we just talked about. But we do want to lead a peaceful, I want to worship in peace and quiet. I want to be able to worship according to my conscience sake and not have to hide in fear as I do it. And that I might live a godly and dignified life in every way. There were parts of the Roman culture that did not allow for godliness and dignified living in every way. There were parts of the Roman culture that were crass and graphic and vulgar. And if you ever get the chance to go to Pompeii, you guys, you're going to see, if you do go there, they're going to point out to you some of the grotesque and despicable things that were going on in the Roman Empire and it was completely normal and every day and not surprising to the general population at all. Things that still today in our culture we would go at least I'd hope we'd do that. Well as Christians even in the midst of a culture that is becoming increasingly and increasingly secular we do want to live a peaceful and quiet life, but we also want to live a life of godliness and dignity. We don't want to be forced into a position where something is being demanded of us by the government that we would consider to be sin, that our consciences wouldn't be clear in doing. So this is another reason for praying for those who are in authority, for who are in leadership, is so that we might be people who live quiet, peaceful lives, who worship with a clear conscience, and then can live our lives out in the world in a manner that's godly, holy, and dignified, consistent with the word of God in every way. So, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. God is pleased when we pray this way. This is good. This is pleasing. I think this needs to be pointed out because, you know, there, there were some, I mean, he's, Nero is going to kill him. Right? We all understand that. Nero was vile. He was, the, he was not a good person. <laughs> In nearly any sense of the word good. 
There were a couple of other Roman emperors that were equally as bad. Domination might have even been worse. So for Paul to emphasize praying for these leaders, it, it helps to have this. Now, this is a good thing. It's pleasing in the sight of God for us to be praying for these leaders, especially ungodly ones. We need to be reminded to be praying for our leaders regularly because it's good for us to do it. Now, to the difficulty of this text. We read the word all here four times, well, three times, and then the word men in verse five. All people, all people, men and all. Now, each one of those four times is talking about the exact same group. So you can't have one without the other. You can't say this only applies to this and this applies to this. They all are referring to the same people. Now, remember, he's writing to a buddy. He's writing to a pal. Well, maybe he wouldn't call him a pal. He calls him his son in the Lord. But they're very, very, very close. And so he can say certain things with an understanding. Let me give you an illustration before we move on here. We, we can say all paradise burned. Right? We can say that. We've heard it. We've said it. We've been up there. We've seen it. We're shocked by the devastation that it is. However, when there are businesses that are open there. There are churches that are worshiping up there today. There are buildings that are still standing there. There are houses where people are living back in them. So did all paradise burn? In one sense, yes. Because the fire swept over the totality of the entire town and there wasn't parts of it that were left unscathed. I mean, maybe minuscule parts, but it spread over the whole thing. And when you go up there, you see the totality. However, is there a sense where we can say not all paradise was burned? Absolutely. And are we speaking out of both sides of the mouth when we do that? Well, no, of course we're not. Another illustration. If I look out here and I say, Joel, he's getting up here, he's ready to do call to worship. And Joel says, are we all here? Well, does he mean Vladimir Putin? (laughs) Right? Of course he doesn't. You know, does he mean Gavin Newsom? No, of course he doesn't. He means are all of us here who are going to be here for the context and purpose of worshiping Christ at Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship, right? He's just using shorthand to get the point across, right? Because that's a lot of words I just said. And it'd be kind of ridiculous to say those every single time that you did something. Paul is doing that here to his friend who has a presupposition and understands what Paul's getting at. So when he says, thanksgiving be made for all people, he does give a qualification for kings and those who are in high positions. He is giving us types and categories of people here, isn't he? Then he goes on, who desires all people to be saved? It's the same people as qualified above, okay? So at this point, with just these... If Paul had stopped right here and said, pray for all people with all these types of prayers so we can live a peaceful and holy life. This is good who desires all God. This is pleasing to God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, period, and moved on to his next topic. 
Well, here we would have a little bit of a tricky time because we'd go, okay, well, all people, he did qualify it, but he's including people who we wouldn't normally pray for. So maybe he's saying God desires people to be saved who we normally wouldn't think. Fair? If we'd stopped right there. But he doesn't stop right there. He moves on and he gives us even more information to help us see exactly what he's getting at here and what the point is. For... There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the same men who are the all people, the same men who are the all people, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay? So, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, we just went through Hebrews extensively through Hebrews. Hebrews uses this word mediator over and over and over and over and over again. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 12, um, chapter 8, it's brought up too in the context of the new covenant. Um, So, in fact, let's look at one of them. Hebrews chapter 9. Do we got a minute? Yeah. Hebrews 9. Verse 13, let's start there. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now there's a lot there. I get it. Let's hone in on verse 15, though, because this has our phrase that we're looking at, mediator. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that, okay, his mediation is for a purpose. And he tells us what this purpose is, folks, right here. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He says the mediation by Christ is so that those who are called will receive the inheritance. It's not there's some who are, all, everybody's called and then some receive the inheritance. It is the mediation happens so that the individuals who are called would receive the inheritance. Okay? That's the new birth. That's new life. That's what we're looking at here. The new covenant is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mediatory work of Jesus Christ is on behalf of those who are called by God so that those who are called by God would receive eternal life. Right? Jesus said in John chapter 6 that all that the Father draws to me will come to me. 
All those who are called by the Father will come to him, and that he will raise all of those people up on the last day. The very same group of people that are called are accepted by Christ, and those who are accepted by Christ are raised up on the last day. So there's consistency with Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, and Paul here. The problem is, is people come into this text and they go, oh, well, it says here, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. End of story, close my Bible, done. (sighs) The Bible is not read like that. Any writer, wait, let me back up a second. Any writer of any book would be so frustrated if you did that, right? If you took something that I wrote, let's say I wrote you a, a six-page letter of 1 Timothy, six chapters, and I wrote it to Nick. And Nick gets out, you know, the letter, and he's reading it, and he's reading it, and Joel and Fred say, hey, what would Pat write you? And he's like, oh, check it out. And he starts reading it, and he reads one sentence and then closes it up and sticks it in his pocket and says, there. That's what Pat thinks. That wouldn't be fair to my thought. That wouldn't be fair to who I am. You all have a context because you know me. So you would read that particular letter and you would see my phraseology and you would understand the way I'm saying certain things, right? So it's not fair to do that to Paul. It's not fair to do that to the Bible here. So it's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people. What people? Well, the same people we pray for but the same people Christ mediates for. You see that? The same people Christ is mediating for. We're praying for people who God, we hope, desires to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why intercessions are made for them, right? That's why we're interceding for them. We want them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Do we know they are? Does anybody know who the people who are going to be saved are? No. If we did, it'd be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? We could just go out there and, ah, there's, the, there's one. Oh, there's one. There's one. But that's not the way the Lord has revealed how he saves people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we preach to all people because we don't know who these specific people Christ is mediating for. We intercede for everybody because we don't know. Perhaps those people are, are the ones who Christ is already mediating for. Who gave himself a ransom for all. This is the clincher in this. He is a ransom. Look at... This word is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let me read that to you just really quick. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, it says, I'll back up to verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited, inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish and spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him, are believers in God 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, all of those people have been ransomed specifically by Christ. Christ is not mediating for a different group of people than for whom he ransomed. And God desires all of these people to be saved. Those who we're interceding for, those who Christ mediates for, and those for whom he ransomed. He does not, there is not a schizophrenia in the Trinity where God's desiring something and Christ's just not doing it because he's only mediating for his people. No, there's a unity. The Father ordained those for whom Christ would ransom and mediate. Christ comes and he purchases their salvation through his substitutionary atonement, through his dying for their sins. He then mediates after he's ransomed them from death, and the Spirit comes to those people and applies it to their lives. The Trinity is perfectly consistent in whom and how salvation is given out to people. And it says that this happened at the proper time. We just saw that right here in this passage here. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Christ came at the exact express moment when he was supposed to come. There was longing. There was 400 silent years before Christ came there with the prophets where nobody was speaking. No prophet was giving utterance. And then all of a sudden John the Baptist comes on the scene. Everyone's freaked out by that guy. I mean, he looked weird too, but he was also saying things that nobody had heard in a long, long time. What the heck is going on here? Well, it was the proper time. Ephesians chapter 3 says this. I've written to you briefly. So when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. It happened at the proper time, exactly when it was supposed to. People, I'm talking with an atheist guy, well, agnostic, he'd probably prefer to be called, but I was talking with him, and he was very, very animated with the fact that Christ couldn't be true and you couldn't be believed because he didn't appear in a time where there isn't video evidence of him. Very, very, very persuaded by that line of reasoning. That if there was a God and there was a Christ and he really wanted us to know whom he was, then there would be evidence for everybody to see and it would be videographic evidence. And I told him, you would be just as skeptical about that evidence as you are the word of God. And the reason is, is because you don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. I will intercede for you. <laughs> that you might have ears to hear and eyes to see. Well, this is what Paul was appointed to do. Notice here, he is a preacher and an apostle. He's not a diplomat. Right? A diplomat is one who comes into two 
opposed parties and kind of smooths things over and makes concessions. And, and he's the one who's the slick politician who's able to say things in a way that gets people to believe in him. And, and oh, okay, and is very persuasive. And Paul is absolutely not that. And I, the, a preacher of the word of God is not a diplomat. I have to say hard words. And I'm compelled by what scripture teaches because we're going through 1 Timothy verse by verse. I can't, you, I can't get away from a difficult text like this or like the next few that we're coming to or like the rest of the, you know, 2 Timothy. I can't get away from, I'm compelled by the word of God. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, which is what everybody needs. All peoples, Jews, Gentiles, kings, slaves, men, women, there's, everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will give it to them. We will preach the gospel to them. I must preach it. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is hard to believe. Because we're telling people that you are, before God's eyes, a person who has sinned in such a way that you deserve his judgment and punishment. And that's hard to hear. And sometimes that's where the acknowledgement stops. That's where the conversation ends because we're saying something so hard that people don't want to hear it. But the truth is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you will believe and you will repent of your sins, believe in the things about Jesus, repent, turn from your old ways and turn to Christ, then you will be saved. And we preach that to everybody in faith and in truth. I believe this stuff. And I preach it because I believe that this is the means by which not only anybody can be saved, but it's what we need as a regular basis as a church. We need to keep hearing this gospel over and over and over again. Because, man, I still sin. (laughs) I still fail. I still struggle. I still need your supplications, your prayers, your intercessions, and hopefully your thanksgivings as well. But, beloved, as we close this here today... We, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful to save. It's for all of those who will believe. And we need to be mindful, first of all, to keep praying for all of the people who are in and around our lives, including people who are in authorities who we might not normally pray for. So maybe this week, do two things huh? as we close. Number one, think about people you don't regularly pray for. Whether it's your boss, whether it's the chief of police of the city of Chico, whether it's, you know, go look up whoever's the commander of the Navy. (laughs) I don't know if that's even a title. I I haven't prayed for that guy, clearly. So look up whoever it is and pray for them. Go be specific about somebody this week who you're going to pray for, who's in a position of authority that you've never prayed for before. Secondly, that you would look around to somebody around you this week and pray specifically for them and then share the gospel with them. Share the gospel because perhaps they are one, even right now, who Christ is mediating for and Christ has ransomed. Perhaps they are one who is awaiting the gospel to be heard and that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And my responsibility is to be a preacher. And so maybe just invite them to church. They'll hear the gospel here for sure. But you share with them as well. So there you go. Two things to take away from this because of the faith and truth that we believe. We want to pray for our leaders and we want to share the gospel with those around us that perhaps they might believe. Lord, we pray that you would give us that uh, resolve, Lord, that strength to go out and to do these things. And Lord, prayer is something that we need your help in. I mean, you say in Romans that your spirit intercedes for us because we don't even know how to pray as we ought to, Lord. So we pray for your strength so that we might pray for those people who are in leadership and authorities. And Lord, I pray that we would pray for people that we wouldn't politically agree with even. That would be very difficult for us unless we have this command in Scripture to be praying for those people. Let's find those people, Lord, and pray for them. And Lord, secondly, that there are people who you have ransomed through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who you're mediating for right now. And Lord, we pray that we would be the means as we preach the gospel by which they would hear your word and perhaps even come to faith in you. We know that some sow the seed and some water, and, but it's you who give the increase, Lord. So we trust you with all of these things. But we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ.